Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing, and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. I'm here, as always, with James Whelan, macro strategist and investment manager at VFS here in Sydney. How are you, James? Fantastic, Paul. The, the commute, it's, uh, it's all back to normal, mate. Great podcast ahead today as well. Yes, it is. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Rate us, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're in Sydney recording this on the 6th of November 2020, a week that has been exceptionally long because on Tuesday, US time, Americans went to the polls to vote in the presidential election. And here we are three days later. We don't know who's going to be in the White House for the next four years uh, right now. And it may be some time before we do. Bearing all that in mind, uh, it's 9 a.m. in Sydney as we're recording. And frankly, this could all be very different by the end of the show um, and certainly by the time you are listening to this. But we are going to give it a crack to talk about what's happened and what's uh, going to happen after this, we're very lucky to be joined by a real veteran operator from Washington, D.C. Larry Grossman is the managing director for the CT Group, my company, uh, in Washington. Uh, no, obviously, being in D.C., he knows his politics, and he's also steeped in business experience, having worked as an advisor to multinationals in aerospace and defense, energy, trade, M&A and litigation, and along the way, he's managed communications for foreign governments. And also worked in the not-for-profit sector. Larry Grossman, thanks for joining us on The Bib Show. Well, thank you for having me here this morning or this evening for you. Yeah, that's right. Well, for me. So, look, let's recap um, uh, where we are. Uh, Joe Biden uh, is very close, isn't he? It's uh, now almost two full days since the polls closed, began closing here in the United States. And he's as close to being the president-elect as as he could be. He's just a few electoral votes shy of, of the 270 that's necessary in our system. He's about 4 million popular votes um, ahead of, uh, of President Trump, putting him about a million two, a million three ahead of where Hillary Clinton was at this point four years ago. But he's as close as he's on the verge of being um, our, our next president. However, there's still states that are out there, and there's still, while it's a narrow pathway, there's still a pathway for the president to uh, be elected for a second term. So one of the big questions on everybody's minds is what just happened? Um, uh, maybe you can give us a, a summary of um, how you think the vote broke down uh, and then how we've reached this sort of impasse, uh, legal threats, etc. I think the vote broke down as, as, um, as expected. Uh, I think I've been characterizing to, to um, non-Americans or Americans alike for the past few years, actually going all the way back to the early Obama administration, that 50% of the, of the country is on one side and 50% is on the other. It's black and white, or in this case, red and blue. So seeing a, a, uh, such a tight election especially in the Electoral College, is, is really no surprise at all. And I don't think, actually, 
the polls um, reflect a whole lot different. There's a whole there's a few exceptions, for example, um, like in Wisconsin or Florida. But but for the most part, this is where we all expect it to be in, especially in the places where where the swing states, the six or seven of them, where we expected it to be really tight. And as I said, there's a pathway for a clear pathway for Biden to become the next president. There's a there is a pathway, but a, a, a narrow one for Trump to be elected to a second term. And each are now taking different paths. I mean, the, the Biden campaign is 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 standing back uh, and allowing votes to be counted. And the Trump campaign is filing lawsuits to keep votes from being counted. Uh, because the way the what's the way the counting is going right now and in the places which matter most, um, it's a tough path for him. So he they have they have um, mounted a legal campaign, which is what everybody knew they would do once the electoral campaign ended and um, implementing it in the state houses, which uh, which matter across Nevada, Arizona, in, in North Carolina and Georgia and in Pennsylvania for the uh, right now. We're definitely going to get to the implications and we'll talk about uh, uh, financial markets in a little bit. We'll also talk about some yes. of the implications uh, uh, for broader uh, policy. But um, just staying with the vote, um, maybe you can go through what you um, the bits and pieces that you thought were interesting in terms of who voted um, for each of the candidates, because there were a few little surprises and talking points in there, weren't there? I think there I think there are. And the place I'd like to start, which is something we um, we focused on closely, which is voter motivation. And so when you ask who voted, the really interesting thing is Americans voted at numbers which they haven't voted at in over 100 years. So uh, Vice President Biden right now has 72.6 million votes compared to Trump's 68.8 million votes, uh, which puts Biden ahead of the highest vote tally ever received by a presidential candidate, which was Barack Obama in 2008. And Trump is getting pretty close to what Obama had as well, even as a, losing, a potentially losing candidate, at least in the, in the popular vote. So Americans came out and voted. And if you look across, it's five, six, seven percent higher than what we saw in, in, in 2016, certainly. And in many places, states are setting records uh, for Voter participation. We here in the United States don't have what you have in Australia. There is no um, mandatory voting. Uh, and we have historically fairly low turnout. But in this case, what we saw doing research here and polling here over the course of the past several months was that voters were really motivated. And in fact, what we're what we're seeing across the states is that voter turnout was really high. So before we get into things like who voted and who didn't vote, I think it's important to say that as as we saw, there was a very supercharged electorate that did come out and vote, at least in numbers that are higher than what we've seen until since probably about 1900, 1910. And so it's a certainly, very long period of time. And certainly in a lot of um, Western democracies, um, there has been this, you know, story over the past few decades of, you know, growing uh, disengagement and, you know, falling turnout uh, in elections. So this is a real uh, challenge to that, isn't it? Um, it is really, um, it, like, in the most spectacular way. It is. And if you saw and looked at the swing states, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, um, Arizona, Georgia, we're seeing 70 to 75 percent participation, unheard of in America. Um, and like I said, we have to go 
all the way back to 1900 to see numbers like this. And then the voting pool was smaller, not only because the population was smaller, but because women didn't have the right to vote at the time. So those those numbers are a little bit apples to oranges. All I can tell you is Americans came out to vote. And really, um, you know, we're seeing that just in the gross numbers of 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 turnout here across the country. And they turned out, you know, in, in the various forms we do vote, you know, whether it's in person on Election Day on Tuesday or mail in voting or um, in early voting, yeah. which we had in places like here in the District of Columbia. G'day, Larry James here. Uh, great to talk to you. The um just talking about the, the, the postal votes and the, the mail-in voting that, that, that you said, it's, it's sort of strange for us as Australians to have obviously such a high proportion of mail-in voting, but obviously it's a different sort of election this time with the pandemic that's going on. Do you think that potentially the turnout will, will maintain that high level in, in future elections to come and that, and that that reliance on the mail-in voting will be, will be so significant? Because Tuesday, Tuesday is, is always a weird day for elections anyway. But there's a big history behind that as to why why it's held on a Tuesday. But do you think that there's going to be more of a lean on this that that, that people will just be in that rhythm of, you know, midterms and then full terms of actually just you know sending away, getting an envelope, filling it out, and sending it back as just being part of the process before the election day? I th- I think what we saw was a was a real jumpstart of what already. Uh, or tailwind for what was already going on in some states, which had early voting and mail-in voting already. And now we're seeing it at a national scale. And what I think you're going to see is um, experts in running campaigns, especially the get out the vote uh, aspect of it, are going to work this into their strategies and assume it's going to be the case. Now, you know, we had very high voter turnout in, in some uncontested elections earlier in the summer in the middle of the pandemic. So, you know, people did come out on election day, but I think people are surprised by the percentage of people who mailed in their votes or came out early when they were given the opportunity to come on a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday and come vote versus standing in line only on a Tuesday. And if you think that things like the weather makes a difference in addition to, you know, when whether you can find a babysitter or not, um, I think people are now uh, going to work this into their calculus on how do you get people out to vote over the course of three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, or how you know whether that's in getting them out to vote can include sticking a, a envelope in a mailbox or in a drop-off box, or going to your polls a week early and making sure that everyone is able to to cast a ballot. So, do you, um, so I think we're I think this is we're just seeing the beginning of this. I yeah. think it's going to be a, a a very good trend in terms of voter participation. And, and talk to me about. Um, the this difference between uh, very large numbers of um, uh, uh, of votes um, being blue uh, in, from the mail-ins. So I, if, I think if I look at uh, Pennsylvania numbers, I'm doing this from memory, but you know Trump was up something like 15 points or more uh, when um, the polling stations closed. But then as um, the mail-ins started to um, to come in, uh, you know Biden has uh, shrunk that lead um, incredibly quickly. Um, so, uh, and it's been the same in, in other places. W- why is it, do you think that, um, uh, first of all, that the uh, Democrats were more effective in getting that mail-in vote out? And then secondly, wasn't this a, a very high wire strategy for the Republicans to d- um, depend on people turning up on polling day? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's going to take a little while to unpack some of that, but let me give you a couple of um, high-level observations. Don't forget that for the past six or eight weeks, maybe 12 weeks, the president himself has been um, talking about how bad and fraudulent mail-in and early voting has been. Yeah. 
So he's discouraged his own base from coming out to doing that. Whereas the Democrats said, and it was part of that was part of President Trump's narrative. Part of President Biden, Vice President Biden's narrative has been that people should be healthy, people should be safe. We're going to run campaigns even from my from the basement to make sure that we're not spreaders of this of this pen of this of this horrible virus and encourage people to come out and actually worked at a state by state level and, and, and a precinct by precinct level to make sure people got their ballots and mailed them in or came to the polls early. So I think it was very conscious of both the vice president and his team to 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 focus on this. And and if again the, pre- the president himself was discouraging mail-in and early voting for the better part of the last three months as he worried about uh, all of this. Now, it's interesting. Historically, the Republicans had been the ones leading the way on early and mail-in voting. Oh. It, was a, it was a campaign tool that they, in fact, um, promoted you know, 15, 20 years ago. So you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, I think there's also a couple of other things. Seniors, which broke toward senior citizens, which broke toward uh, Vice President Biden um, this time uh, by by bigger numbers than than um, they did in 2016. May in fact have wanted to mail in a ballot or go earlier for their own personal safety reasons, for their own personal health reasons. So I think we have to unpack that sort of demographic. But I look at it from the Biden campaign said, let's get people to vote. Period. How they do it and when they do it is incidental, whereas the Trump campaign said we don't want mail-in and we don't want early voting because it's fraudulent. And I, I've got to believe his base was discouraged from doing what they might have otherwise have done at very large numbers because his base wasn't any less motivated than the vice president's base. The, um, if it, in summing it up and you look at it, you think it's, it's incredible that we look back and we think that putting or not putting your – electorate in harm's way was actually a campaign policy and a strategy that they each ran differently. That was just bizarre to me. Biden, we don't want you guys getting killed. Trump, good luck <laughs> on the day. It's bizarre. As, as symbolised as symbolized by two things here in America. Number one is masks became, if you wore a mask, you were a Democrat. In my neighbourhood, which is a, a very, very Democratic base here in the District of Columbia, um, everyone wears masks. But if you drive an hour and a half outside of Washington to West Virginia, nobody wears a mask. West Virginia was this was the state that gave Trump his um, largest proportion of the state vote up around 70 percent. And then the other thing is the image itself of Vice President Biden, you know, doing Zoom calls and Teams calls and everything else from his basement and Trump running around the country, meeting in groups of people, only to read reports later in the week about um, super spreader events and and people getting sick. So it, it's exactly right. The images are exactly as divided as the country, mask wearing or, or events. It's as simple as that. And I think those will be huge images of this election. So going to some of the talking points then as well in terms of demographics, there's been um, a fair bit made uh, in in a lot of corners about um, the Latino vote for uh, Trump in Florida um, and uh, the increase uh, measured by uh, the very large opinion poll, um, uh, 20,000 voters uh, on the day, which showed that um, uh, there was an increase in support for Trump uh, among black women, uh, amongst other unexpected groups. Uh, what do you make of that, Larry? Um, 
I think in terms of the Latino vote and the Hispanic vote, we have to differentiate a little bit in terms of the demographics of even that, because we have the, the traditional Cuban-American base who have always had a single issue politics, which is U.S. relations with and position on Cuba and then the larger Hispanic population. And so, you know, the Hispanic population in Texas will vote differently than in Florida. But in Florida, which was obviously a state that both candidates uh, focused on, uh, Trump spent more time and more money there than 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 Biden. And I think the Democrats will look back on that and, and think, OK, they had the resources in terms of money to run a campaign, to do TV, to do radio, to do social media. And they didn't do it to, for as long and at the same extent as Trump. They'll see that as having been a mistake. Um, with regard to African-American women, I haven't seen those numbers yet. I've seen trends that say that the Biden numbers were not as high as Hillary Clinton's numbers with African-American men and African-American women. Um, but we'll have to take a look at that. Um, certainly, there's always the expectation that the numbers for African-Americans will be high. And I think people sometimes base mistakenly base that on what they were historically for, for, for President Obama, which uh, made great sense because of the context of him being our first African-American president. But I, I haven't seen the specific numbers state by state. I have seen the general numbers. I'm a little surprised by that. Um, but then again, as as I think African-American people often tell you is don't don't think of us as just a, as a monolithic voting block. Um, they often, you know, they we, we often put people together by skin color, or ethnicity, forgetting about where they live and what other values they might have. Indeed, indeed. Um, and uh, this um, leads me into um, the, the opinion polling. Um, so I think the New York Post had that headline, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, wrong, wrong, wrong um, that I saw uh, from today's paper talking about, you know, polls and pundits being uh, hopelessly wrong. This is a bit of an interesting area, isn't it? Now, CT um, does some polling. The way we poll is a, a little bit different. Maybe you can talk about um, that. But maybe let's talk about the error first, uh, and then you can talk talk about the, um, the, the significant polling that uh, you oversaw there. I do think I do think there's going to be um, it's it's easy to uh, blame pollsters first. So let's start with that. Somebody's somebody got it wrong. So it's easy to start with the pollsters who are the ones giving us daily, sometimes 10 times a day horse race predictions. Um, you know, and it might be I was, you know, the the sports books are actually better at, at doing this than than pollsters. But I think if you look deep down in the numbers, um, I do think there's one or two places where pollsters will have to reevaluate how they poll. And Florida, once again, is a really good example of that. Florida, in fact, might be four or five different states that require then different ways of polling. And what I mean by that is South Florida has a large Hispanic population. Central Florida has lots of East Coasters who've moved south for retirement or for better weather or for jobs. North West Northeast Florida has has other transplants who come for big business. And if you go over to the the, the western side of the, of the country of the state, you see uh, it's far more southern, like Mississippi, Arkansas, southern Missouri, than it is um, than certainly southern Florida or the Orlando region. So you take a state like Florida, and it may require a whole different science of polling, or you have to poll based on 
the area of Florida and then put it all back together again. People have often talked about taking states like California and Florida and breaking them up into nine different states in the case of California because they're so big and the demographics are just so different from one end of the state to the other. Um, so let's let's start with that. Our own polling, I think, which we, we didn't want to do a horse race. We didn't want to do another prediction of who the next president of the United States was. There's plenty of that. We got we did a deep dive in the things that were impacting voters, you know, and what, what their motivations were, what drove them, things like, you know, influencing events uh, and interests, whether it was the economy, whether it's the pandemic, um, or simply, do you like President Trump or you don't like President Trump? And we focused mostly, and I think most interestingly, on two categories of voters, the swing voters, those who either hadn't decided a couple weeks before Election Day, um, or could be influenced if they were leaning toward one or the other. And then what we called the Trump defectors, the people who had voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but had declared that they were no longer going to vote for um, him and were going to vote for Joe Biden. So, you know, we, we didn't vote. We didn't attempt to pick a winner or a loser. We wanted to do a, a real um, deep bit of research into what were the things driving people in in seven or in seven swing states and who those and who the key voters were the voters that obviously the campaigns were focused mostly on um, um where do you think um uh, trump was effective so recalls uh, one of the um uh, the findings out of that was how influential trump himself was in the vote um was it in terms of driving vote both towards him so people you know, who like Donald Trump would vote for him. And then, like you said, you know, asking, do you like him? Um, so if you like him, you're likely to vote for him. If you don't like him, it is, you know, and, and which seems incredibly simple, but um, a, a political leader is not always so influential uh, in, in driving vote um, in, in this kind of research. So where do you think Trump was effective? Uh, and, um, and, and the same question for Biden. And where do you think they maybe missed um, some opportunities? I think Trump was singularly effective in two ways. One is driving in in, in keeping his own base um, close and getting them to go out and vote, keeping them motivated and getting them out to vote. And I think he was singularly impactful in in building a, a strong opposition to himself. He was the compelling uh candidate in this in this in this election, uh, more so than even the vice president. Uh, as the opposition, uh, you were you were either for Donald Trump or against Donald Trump, and one of the things we focused very closely on was what was driving that, and you know, looking at pe- people's um, uh, it, the things that people cared about, whether it was the economy and jobs, whether it was the pandemic and and the related issue of healthcare. These were the two big drivers, and it broke down into if you were for Donald Trump, you worried greatly about the economy and your jobs. If you worried if you were against Donald Trump or pro Joe Biden, you your biggest concern was 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 the pandemic and 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 health issue. All right, that just sort of moving it um, now, including insurance. That's a, that. So now moving it sort of more towards the markets, uh, towards the I side of the BIP, which we do from the from the P mm-hmm. side. So. The stimulus measures. So, what's uh, what do you think is going to happen now with the stimulus measures? Now that it looks like you're going to have a uh, we're going to have a Senate that's going to be blocked up, you're going to have a House that stays mm-hmm. status quo ish, and a, and a president without a real clear mandate. Um, so, and then that's going to relate to 
you know, Americans, the American economy, they couldn't they couldn't come to an agreement because Pelosi wanted two point two trillion dollars, like the telephone numbers and the and uh, Munchen wasn't after that. What's um, yeah? What, what, what's what's your view for the stimulus ahead? I don't think anything will change with regard to what um, Speaker Pelosi wants to do and the Democrats want to do in the House of Representatives. Uh, They want a big package that spends a lot of money on taking care of a lot of people. Uh, And nothing will change for the next three months. Let's assume let's assume um, Trump loses because it's an important part of this calculus in our system. He remains president until January 20th. So we have a very long time between now and a new president. So we don't know what the the a lame duck Trump administration will do with regard to um, putting forward numbers and programs on a stimulus package. The other part of this is we don't know where Senator McConnell will be, who was the who blocked a lot of even what Trump wanted to do in the past few weeks because he was concerned about his Republican candidates and he had the majority of them up for re-election, how they would have to vote on stuff and how it would impact their their things. So there's a bunch of wild cards. And one one you can make various predictions. One could say, okay, the election's over. They're all going to come together, you know, be very happy and do the right thing for the American people. Um, I wouldn't bet on that. Uh, you could say that, Pelosi and Mnuchin will cut a deal that the president will then have to agree with because Pelosi and Mnuchin were pretty close on 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 some numbers and a lot of programs. But and then, you know, McConnell's still a bit of the wild card, but he's just been he's he himself has just been reelected, as have a couple of his um, a couple of his uh, more difficult uh members of his caucus. So I think I think we're going to have to wait and see. There's so many scenarios on how this can play out. And it will depend on in the next couple of days, is, is, is Trump heading into his second term or is he a lame duck? And what he what his role will be if he is a lame duck over the next three months. Yeah, um, it's, but it's, the marketplace is def- definitely looking forward to to being having some stability here that's for sure yeah it's 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 extraordinary isn't it really uh you know that um uh you know help for americans in you know this absolutely gargantuan uh down economic downturn we've been through um you know has been tied up uh and um even with the election now passed you know in terms of the atmospherics of everything that the republicans could still um, you know, or both sides could still play very hardball, um, you know, uh, in terms of Congress uh, getting its uh, act together and uh, um, getting some money into people's pockets uh, before Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's- I, I, I don't I wouldn't put good odds on that happening. Um, I, I'm, I am not very good at picking winners and losers. But in this case, um, I don't see. You could see some targeted aid coming, but on the other hand, if you bail out the airlines, why aren't you bailing out the restaurant workers? Mm. And that'll be the mentality of of various, um, uh, you know, especially you know, as, as you know, you see in the UK restaurants or in France, UK restaurants and bars being shut down. We haven't really even reopened in large parts of the country. So, um, you know, I think there will be a discussion about the airlines. There'll be a discussion about a couple sectors, but if you're if you know. 
for every for every constituency, for every interest group that could possibly be taken care of, you're also making a decision not to help other people, small businesses of one kind or another, for example. I'm relieved by your uh, uh, relieved and buoyed by your optimism, uh, Larry. Um, so, um, <laughs> um, uh, I was so, going to say the potentially procrastination straight out of my playbook is is, is procrastination. Eventually, it'll just fix itself. <laughs> that if you put it off long enough, then the magic bullet, you know, the silver bullet vaccine, is going to be there, and everyone can just go back to work. It's, it's, it's maybe there's a bit of a chance at that one too. Um, so, look, uh, yeah, but you know, we also we also have another. We if if Biden wins, we also have another issue, which is he still has to get something done by 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 through the Republicans in the Senate. And, you know, the Republicans in the Senate have not cared very much about things like deficit spending in the last four years. It seems the Republicans come out of the woodwork and complain about deficit spending when you have a Democrat in control. Mm -hmm. And so we will we will see some um, revivalist uh, nature in the Republicans when it comes to being religious on 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 the deficit. So that will also impact the likelihood of both getting a stimulus package quick and at, at some large amount. Um, so with um, the tone a bit higher, uh, let's uh, talk about stocks. Um, wasn't so much a case of uh, buy the rumor, sell the fact as buy the rumor, buy the uncertain outcome, uh, uh, buy everything, right? I, I, so, don't stop buying until I tell you. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's going on, James? Um, well, it, it, as as sort of said, half predicted was that everything is a buying opportunity. I thought that there would be more of a dip. We saw October um, really get a kicking with the worst, the sort of the, the, the week before the election being the worst week in markets. And I'm talking US markets mostly, worst week in markets since since March, since since the original pandemic hit. And I thought that there potentially with, with that was the um, risk being taken off the table in preparation for what could have been, you know, civil unrest, a, a properly contested election, and when I use the term contested election, I don't mean I don't mean a few Trump lawyers throwing some lawsuits around to stop votes. I mean a contested election means means we've got police barricades up and there's actual protests, a little bit like what might be sort of happening in Portland at the moment. But so th- that's what I was saying. So the risk was being taken off the table. It, it was incredible just how quickly all of this just got put back on, and and risk was was into the market again. And on a no decision, a no decision seems to have been a great thing for markets because it means, that, okay, so if Congress is locked up, if the Senate is locked up, there's no blue wave. So we're unwinding that blue wave trade. And a lot of that blue wave trade was taking risk off the table in the tech stocks and in the, in the preemptively thinking that they were going to be beaten up, having, having to be broken up, Facebook being smashed, destroyed, losing WhatsApp, losing Instagram, antitrust, the Department of Justice all over the place, that, and as, as was already happening. I mean, Google and Facebook both received a, a DOJ. Could still well happen too, but... It, yeah. it, it, it could, but there's going to be less of a mandate to do so if you don't have Elizabeth Warren front row centre um, um, just just being the hero on this one against those stocks. So Nasdaq's put on, you know, put on what, almost 4% night before last. This morning, you know, you wake up and you see that all of all of your, your, your nice little tech stocks that were copying and beating have basically put it all back on. Another few percent. So about maybe 6, 6.5% on Nasdaq. The S&P... You know, not as much. It doesn't move as, as well, but but it's definitely does seem like a, 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 that when if you take government out of the situation, this is going to sound like it's it's weird, but a government without a mandate, it means that companies can there's less chance of regulation on on the banking sector, less chance of regulation in the tech sector. Um, potentially, to, to just uh, it means that you don't have, and we'll get to this later. You know that that, that image that a lot of people was, were being a bit fearful of is is that your your treasury secretary Elizabeth Warren and your secretary of state. 
AOC or something like that, you know, it's, it, and it sort of takes that volatility out of it. It means it, it – and, and the VIX has come down a few points as well and the market's gone up. Markets really do like that sort of indecision. So, Larry, you see all this on the ground uh, in terms of the questions about what different uh, uh, prospective administrations, uh, the directions they may take um, policy in terms of business regulation. Uh, uh, what do you think uh, uh, in terms of how this looks now for the corporate sector? Well, I think we saw in another sector today and yesterday too a big sigh of relief. It was reflected by their share prices. The insurance companies all were up um, 10, 15 percent yesterday, and I suspect they were up um, a good amount today as people um, looked at a a Biden a potential of a Biden administration, but a Republican controlled Senate, which slows everything down. So that's that was in, that was very interesting to me. The tech stuff I was interested in because you know I don't think the Biden agenda on some of the antitrust issues look, that are being looked at at Google, Facebook, and 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 Apple will be will be much different from from the Trump administration. Actually, I think the the Biden administration will be slightly more activist than the Trump administration on antitrust generally tends to, you know, go that way with Democrats versus Republicans. Um, so we'll see. And then the question becomes what happens in various sectors. I mean, uh, I saw some note today where people were talking about the defense sector. Well, we still, we're still going to spend $700 billion on national security, on defense next year, which includes building a whole bunch of F-35s, two submarines per year, tanks, armaments and everything else you can. Um, so there's going to be a lot of defense um, spending and that gets reflected in, you know, by to the big defense companies, Lockheed's and Northrop's uh, General Dynamics, which I should uh, disclose I represent. But those those companies also provide, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of touch labor jobs. And, you know, at a time in which we, we need jobs maybe more than ever, although people will always argue that we always need jobs, but with between the pandemic and the, and the resulting downturn in the economy, there's nothing like a shipbuilding job uh, to feed a family. And so, you know, we'll see what happens there. Um, in the other, other sectors, I think we'll have to see. I mean, obviously, um, oil and gas may have taken a big Big um, deep breath uh, yesterday morning, um, looking at the Senate uh, and looking at uh, Biden, who won't have the mandate to um, do maybe some of the Green New Deal things people were talking about. But then on the other hand, it will still be a more liberal approach to energy, and that might be good for the companies in the renewable energy sector. But we've already seen such rapid growth in that, which is all market-driven in any case, a transition from from coal to natural gas or or coal to wind and solar. I mean, that's all been market-driven here by based on the price of natural gas, for example. Mm. So it'll be very interesting to see. Biden, Biden will have a they will be very, very calculated in what they do. They'll be very formulaic. That's his nature in what they do. They will be reviewing every rule and regulation that the Trump administration um, has has uh, done by fiat. Those places where a president can do things without the, the U.S. Congress. And they'll march their way through sector by sector, whether it's agriculture or, or energy, uh, and you know do what they can. But I suspect they've spent the last six months reviewing that type of thing in any case. Let's quickly look uh, um, briefly at, at the legal situation. Uh, what, what routes to challenges are open? 
because Trump um, uh, on the night of the election stood up and said, we're going to go to the Supreme Court. Um, now, that's not a court of first instance, is it, um, uh, for these appeals. It, the legal process will largely need to start somewhere else. So, so um, w- what routes are available uh, and what is realistic here um, in terms of what he's able to do with the vote? Well, I think the, the, we have uh, 50 states, each one having their own electoral system. And so, you know, we, we have a, whether it's a, whether that's good or bad, it just means every state has their own laws, their own rules, and their own legal system for how to, um, to, to review the outcome of an election. And reviewing outcome of elections happens all the time. We have recounts and things like that on a very regular basis, at the national level and the state and local level. Um, what, and, and, you know, this is very narrow as well because we're only now having five or six states that are in play. Nobody's going to argue that California and New York were unfair or Mississippi or Arkansas were unfair on the other side. So we're focused on the five or six we've always focused on. And each one of those have their own rules. And the pathway for doing anything legal is, I think, the they it isn't just the president. The Democrats learned their lesson from 2000 in the Florida recount and, you know, have put together big legal teams who've been in the states for the past couple of weeks getting ready for this. So they, they have the state court system and they have a, a federal court system. Um, the, the president turned reflexively, I think, to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court first was the decider in, in, in uh, Bush versus Gore in 2000. And then the president has also been, you know, historically a uh, unique position of having been able to get three out of the nine Supreme Court justices confirmed, all of whom which were his picks and conservative. So he looks to the court as a safe haven, if you will. But nobody knows what what the what the courts would do, because we also don't know what the underlying laws and the rulings might be. So if you go to states where he's filed suit in Nevada, which is to which is to stop um, counting votes in Arizona, which is to stop counting votes, Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Um, like I, ju- there's a headline right now: Judge dismiss Trump claims in Georgia and Michigan. So a judge has already dismissed the grounds for a suit in in Georgia and Michigan. So that means he'll probably turn to a higher court, if not the Supreme Court. But um, you know, Michigan obviously has gone has been called for the uh, for Biden. And Georgia, which is, you know, will be called sooner than later, most likely for for Trump. But judges have already ruled out the legal basis of their protests. And if if anything else breaks in the next, you know, few minutes while we're talking, I'll let you know. But that just popped up on the on the news tonight, which is that um, the uh, uh, the uh, judges have thrown out these cases already in two of those five or six states. So it's it's going. This could um, go on for quite some time, right? Um, so uh, and what? Um, let's do, so um, let's quickly look at um, one other thing that I think is going to be really important. So uh, on the, as we've been discussing um, the Biden presidency, you know he's within a hair's breadth of it now, really, uh, in terms of electoral college votes. Um, one of the big questions, uh, defining theme of the uh, Trump presidency has been the China relationship. So what do you think a Biden presidency would mean for um, the China relationship, uh, first of all, and then more broadly for multilateralism, uh, including things like the TPP? Let me, by, let me start by, by saying that um, 
the truth of the matter is that being tough on China is maybe the one thing that unifies us in a very polarized uh, country right now. Um, we're polarized in our politics, but when it comes to policy on China, uh, I, I, I think there's no polarization at all. And so that allows – and there's two, there's, there's two things. There's the underlying policy. And then according to some research done by the Pew um, Charitable Trust earlier this year, 75% of Americans, regardless of party, regardless of age, regardless of, of race, regardless of sex, 75% of Americans have a negative opinion about President Xi and China. So that allows anybody with a public policy position that's tough to do what they want politically. There's no downside. So I think what we will see uh, from the Biden, a Biden presidency and a Biden State Department or Commerce Department and 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 um, uh, trade representative won't be a whole lot different from what we've seen in the past four years from President Trump. It, with one exception, it'll be less noisy. It'll be less discordant. Yeah, less, uh, less on Twitter. Will, yes. And, and that's an important thing. Uh, in order to be able, while the policies might be similar, we will nothing will change with regard to Huawei. Nothing will change with regard to ZTE. Nothing will ch change with regard to agricultural quotas and stuff like that. It'll just be less noisy. And one might make another a case that the Biden administration will be a Biden administration would be far more forceful on using trade and economics on on matters that. Democrats tended – there seems, again, to be a bipartisan um, concern in the U.S. Congress, not having been reflected by the Trump administration, on human rights issues in the Wiggers. So, you know, I think, I think this is the tie that binds when it comes – the one thing that binds Democrats and Republicans. China has uniquely been able to bring the United States together on that front. Um, and we won't see much different – in fact, we'll see a lot of things continued from the Biden administration. It'll just be, as I put it, less noisy. Uh, and I'm, I think everybody will be able to take a deep breath and be thankful for that for a while. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of when the last there – there would have been such a unifying, a unifying great enemy, probably Khrushchev, I'd potentially say, that, 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 that just that, you know, the big, the big Russian sort of enemy as, as being that, that unifies the, the, the American people. But the, um, from an investment perspective, so, so looking at this too is, is – and, and sort of just keeping back in the eye here too, uh, Colgo, is, is that we were in the market happy to buy those Asian tech stocks uh, yesterday, just going that, that, that it seems like there's a release valve that's been pulled off and that and that, that volatility is sucked out of it. So those are the stocks like uh, – and Larry's correct. Huawei is dead as far as I'm concerned and, and, and those other ones in that, in that space too. In terms of its global expansion. Yes, yeah, okay. yes. And, and then because it has to get ripped out of boxes, it then sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that they'll only be able to sell to themselves um, and, and, and that's it. No one else will be able to use them. So, um, but we're happy to buy those JD.com, Tencent. It, it, you know, it, it, won't be, it won't be Trump saying we're going to have to shut WeChat down by executive order or any of that nonsense. It's going to be a more – so then, you know, that one, that one Chinese tech stock that you've got all of a sudden just gets decimated – 
So yeah, yeah. Th- that, that's gone from us. So we're now happy to go back into the market and buy Asian tech again, which whereas we've been very uncertain to do so. Interesting. Um, so um, one really important question, Larry, will be who we'd be looking at under, um, again, this is all hypothetical. Uh, we don't know uh, who's going to be in the White House, but it, under a Biden scenario, um, which looks most likely, who would be, who are the types of people we'd be looking at for Treasury Secretary uh, and Secretary of State, do you think? I think I think people have have already tried to digest the fact that Biden might win and the Senate not being controlled by the Democrats as being impactful to his nominations. So today there's speculation that that Secretary of State Susan Rice, who would probably have a tough confirmation hearing, would be out and he would find somebody, um, Nick Burns, um, uh, I'm, I'm confusing my 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 uh, Burnses, but other people who are part of the, the 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 establishment, foreign policy establishment, people who were worked for President Obama will be back in favor. Um, but that's a lot. That these are ultimately choices that the that the president elect will have to make um, on on his own. At the Defense Department, everyone's. Um, pointing toward what would be the first woman uh, as the head of the Pentagon, Michelle Flournoy, who was Deputy Secretary of Defense in the Obama administration and a, and a well-known figure here and internationally. And then at Treasury, again, looking at who might be uh, confirmable in, in a Senate that uh, is still controlled by the Republicans. The name that uh, has popped up in the past and popped up most uniquely today is Lael Brainerd, one of the the Fed governors who uh, has right. worked in the um, past administrations, um, you know, as, as somebody who would be a very good Treasury secretary and a confirmable Treasury secretary. And I, and I say that because you ha- like being president, you have to be elected first. Like being um, Secretary of Treasury, you have to be confirmed by the Senate first. And so people looked at, are already looking today at more moderate Democrats than where Biden might have gone if the Senate had flipped to Democratic control. Really interesting. Um, one quick last question. Um, uh, if Trump um, was to somehow squeak back in, um, what do you think a second Trump term might bring? I think we'll see much of the same. Uh, I think it will have to deal with economic issues, but then the president of the United States, uh, regardless, would have to deal with the fact that we're still at record unemployment. Uh, we're still at record deficits. Um, we'll see under a Biden administration, we will certainly see um, some rethinking on repealing or amending some of the Trump tax cuts. But that requires, again, the Senate to go along with that. And, you know, a lot of those tax cuts that were granted to, to the businesses were hard fought over 20 plus years. And so I think you'll see the scaling back of expectations on a large scale repeal of, of, the, of, the, of the Trump tax plan. It will require the House, anything can happen in the House of Representatives. Nancy Pelosi has her uh, is a is a very powerful leader in the in the House, and she will be able to keep her all of her Democrats together, and they will probably do a bunch of things symbolically, uh, 
But the question becomes, can you get it through the Senate? And the chances are it's really tough. The other thing that the one place there I think you see people coming together around is on a stimulus bill um, uh, of oh, I'm sorry, an infrastructure bill as, as a stimulus uh, matter. And, you know, I think people Trump, it's one place. But I think President Trump never took advantage of the interest on Capitol Hill to do something, roads and bridges, uh, advanced um, air, updated air traffic control modernization, all of those things that have been um, underfunded here in the United States that do create jobs and do set you forward for the next 20 or 30 years. So mm-hmm. I think you'll see the president's interest in that, but I also think you'll see a congressional interest in it. But again, we come back to how do you pay for that sort of thing? We haven't raised gasoline taxes in this country in probably 40 years. And even going from the marginal amount we pay uh, for gas tax in America to adding a quarter uh, to it is is a real challenge because it's seen as a tax increase. That's a federal so we'll tax. See. Is it? Is there a federal uh, uh, gasoline yeah. levy? Is there? Yes, there is a federal level, but it hasn't changed in nearly 40 years. States <laughs> states each have their own taxes, too. It's yeah. like it's like on a pack of cigarettes. A pack of cigarettes, if you go to Virginia, costs X. And if you go to Maryland, they cost twice as, as much. Um, so, But the same is true for gasoline. Very high taxes in certain states, very low taxes in other states. But the federal tax is very marginal. Mm. Just going to push people to electronic vehicles anyway, if you put it up, even more so. Just that, that'll just force that'll just force the issue even more. Um, yeah, and I think electric vehicles are a place where you'll see. So, but again, it's the marketplace driving this as well. You, but you'll see the, the the Biden administration being big proponents of electrification of transportation, and you will see various ways of how to encourage that. The Democrats will look at at spending and incentives, investment tax credits, stuff like that, and the Republicans will cautiously look at the cost of it and and see if they can go along in some places. I have to say, just on your mention of uh, stim- uh, infrastructure spending there, um, uh, personal self-interest, I would be delighted to see an upgrade to Newark Airport. Uh, um, <laughs> it is like, here we are, I'm arriving in, you know, the capital of the world, uh, New York, and you get out and it's like, whoa, where am I? During when Trump, during the debates with Clinton, when he, when he was whinging about how bad the airports were, <laughs> you've had all the chances now with them being shut down to actually fix it and you haven't actually been able to do it. They truly are. Newark and LAX. Uh, like, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so um, the, one, the one place the one place you guys haven't asked about, which would be interesting, is, is to see what um, Biden does. And it might be interesting for your audience is on a trans-Pacific, a trans-Pacific partnership on trade. And it's the one it's if I were if I were looking at Asia right now. That's the big question out there is trade agreements are really hard. You know, we've been talking about a U.S.-U.K. trade deal for absolutely ever. And, you know, there's no reason why it can't get done except for the U.K. has farmers and we have farmers. Mm. And, and so and we the did- same issues will impact, T, you know, TPP. But I think it's one of those things, if I were Asia-focused, which is not my real expertise, but if I were Asia-focused from, from both a fundamental issue and also the politics of it, I'd, I'd, I'd wonder if Biden, if he does it, he'd have to start early in his administration because it's just too hard to do at the end of a four-year administration. So, um, yeah, so you'd be looking at, um, uh, obviously, uh, J- Japan, um, you know, Australia, uh, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia um, and countries in Southeast Asia. Um, do, do you think that that's um, that's doable? Like, given 
what you said about this, um, you know, there's the uh, there's the domestic concern in in the states about China. Um, do, does that translate to like a sort of general isolationism, or um, which we've seen under the Trump administration, or do you think there's there's room for that multilateral uh, approach to um, to foreign relations? I think I think the word isolationism is is a really um, old word, which unfortunately hasn't been discarded yet. And I think what we've seen in the in the last six or seven months with the pandemic, and I might be using a phrase, in fact, your prime minister um, first used, uh, which is um, uh, looking at economic sovereignty is is having your you 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 won't be isolated because you can't be. Uh, we are always we in the United States are always going to rely on China for semiconductors and batteries, for example. But we may want to have or pharmaceuticals, which is a great example, and antibiotics. We, we, we may, though, want to have a domestic capability so that when we need it the most, it's there. So even if it's 10 or 15 percent versus 100 percent reliance right now, we are 100 percent dependent on refined cobalt from from China, for example, for electric vehicle batteries or cell phone batteries, um, we might want to have a domestic mining and, and if not mining, refining capability in the United States. And I think if you go sector by sector, you you have to look at that. And so I think that that's a transition away from the the old form of isolationism, like building a wall around the United States to actually thoughtfully, and, and you in Australia are doing the same exact thing, um, and thoughtfully looking at, okay, there are sectors in which we want to be able to control our sovereignty, even if we it's a, a 10 or 15% of the marketplace. And I think that's a really interesting debate over the next 10 years, one which, and I do think it comes around to places like the TPP, and it, it, it may be that you can do things under trade arrangements, just like you do under national security arrangements um, going forward, not so that it's us versus them, but it's us together being able to meet uh, certain economic um, needs beyond just having free trade. It's actually way more calculated than that. And I, and, I, and I think there's some people doing some really interesting thinking on this issue of economic sovereignty, whether it's in the semiconductor space, um, you know, as we've seen with companies being encouraged to come to the U.S. like Taiwan Semiconductors, um, you know, and or pharmaceutical companies setting up manufacturing back in the United States, which they'd all moved to, to China, or setting up um, systems in, you know, if it isn't going to be back in the U.S., it'll be in India, uh, where we might have um, more security with regard to our supply chain control and management, uh, or certainly security if, the, if you're worried about such things as um, companies like Huawei on your, on your telecom grid. Um, it certainly uh, makes uh, for an interesting prospect uh, in terms of the evolution of the corporate environment, because... Um, you know, for for a long time, businesses uh, have been able to grow under a certain what was a previous sort of uh, global consensus on on, on uh, the benefits of globalization and um, uh, and f- and freer trade, uh, and that has been reversed. Um, but it also um, uh, leads into a scenario where uh, companies need to um, rethink how they fit into. Um, uh, uh, 
government policy, um, uh, you know, across the board, across multiple nations as well. So not just uh, in the con country where they operate, but uh, understanding the political environment in multiple countries. So uh, that certainly pushes my buttons, um, and uh, it um, certainly makes for a, an interesting few years ahead, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's one of those places we all have to watch and also then understand how the Chinese will react to it, too. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, as as the U.S. has cut off things um, from the Chinese, whether it's Intel or Qualcomm or Broadcom chipsets, um, you know, the Chinese have developed industries overnight. And what's stopping them from becoming their own suppliers, where in the past they've relied on American supply chains. So we also have to look at it that way, too. And you're obviously doing the same in China, whether it's whether it's manufacturing or the implications of foreign investment, which is very important in Australia as it is in the U.S., whether it's real estate or, or agriculture or, or mining. And so I think, I think it's something to constantly revisit. Um, and, you know, I do think people are paying close attention to it. Trump will pay close. You asked the question about what would a second term of a Trump administration be, and I flippantly said a lot of the same. I think it gets a little bit more refined than that because it has to be. Uh, and under a Biden administration, I think you'll see a continuum of the use of many of the same tools, many of which were, were really exploited under the later parts of the Obama administration on, on sanctions and to a lesser degree tariffs. But you'll see a continuation of it. And But you'll also see a little bit more attention paid to uh, human rights and then using the same tools of trade whether it's t sanctions or tariffs to impact uh, behavior, not just not just to punish bad people for doing bad things, but to systemically change over the long term behavior. I think you'll see similar stuff coming out of the Biden camp. Uh, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I would say the one big uh, takeout for me uh, is that I feel uh, quite calm uh, after uh, uh, the chaos of this week, uh, and I can see uh, a bit more clarity on the way forward. Uh, it's been really uh, a great chat, uh, Larry. Um, thank you for making the time to come on the show and uh, share all your insights. I'm, I was happy to do so. Uh, I hope you all have a good day here. It's the one, the one interesting thing. It's uh, two nights after. We don't have a new president yet, but the streets of Washington, which everybody was expecting to, to uh, be absolutely crazy over the next few days, are actually quite calm. And we'll see if that continues over the next week or so. Which is great. And uh, it's uh, Friday morning uh, here in Sydney, and it was um, pretty, pretty grim this morning, but uh, looking at the window, the sun is coming out. So, um, so well, at least you're, you're you're heading you're heading into the summer, and we're heading into the darkness and cold of winter. So it's yeah. you know, but the life at the different end of the planet. So. That's right. That's right. Uh, so you can find us on iTunes at the Bip Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore Show, and we're also on Facebook too. Just search the Bip Show. We're also there individually at Colgo and at James Whelan 42. James, that was good fun. Mate, it was good fun. Uh, markets open, markets up, and this is before they've even decided a new president. So. I hope they count forever because it's just uh, it's just going to keep going. Okay. Um, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everyone. Uh, the show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 